Okay, everyone. So um, here we go again. And uh, there was one question that we didn't, I didn't answer yesterday. I promised to uh, take it back to my room and have a look at it. This was the question about the meaning of when eating fresh or dried food, one shouldn't be overly satisfied. And the meaning seems to be basically that one shouldn't eat too much. That seems to be the meaning here. You shouldn't be overly full or overly replete. That seems to be an, an old translation and it has been changed later on to uh, because they, I think they realized it wasn't quite satisfactory, that translation here. So there you are, fairly obvious solution to that one here. So um, let us carry on. So, dear Ajahn Brahmali, during meditation, what does the rapture mean? Uh, is it a tingling sensation? Thank you. Uh, so rapture is like a feeling of joy. Yeah, you're feeling glad inside. Uh, it's like when you, you, know, you feel kind of bright and happy and joyful. There's very positive feelings inside of you. Uh, and uh, rapture is kind of a strong feeling of that. Uh, and uh, sometimes it can be, you can feel it physically in your body. Uh, yeah, like kind of waves almost of kind of joy happening in the body. So it's a kind of strong form of joy uh, going on. Uh, and it can have physically, it can be mental. People experience these things slightly differently depending on the strength of the feeling, depending on your conditioning, I suppose, all of these kind of things. And in the Visuddhimagga, they talk about different ways that rapture, piti is the Pali word, can be experienced. So tingling sensation, yeah, that can be part of it, but it's not any tingling sensation. It's a very specific tingling that is very happy, yeah, very joyful kind of tingling sensation, if you like. So a bit of tingling can be part of it. So you are, if you're getting rapture, you're doing very well because that means you are on that trajectory of the dependent liberation, like we talked about today. Yeah, we dependent liberation. The suttas it starts off with just morality, sila, your conduct, your habits, good habits, whatever, non-remorse, and then from that comes the pamuja, which is like a basic gladness. From that comes the rapture, the piti. Yeah, and then after that comes the pasadi, the deep tranquility, then the happiness, then the samadhi. So that means you're doing really well already if you get some of that rapture. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. Okay. So, uh, as Ananda was saying, the lot's quite heavy today, so you better go a bit fast, faster than we did yesterday. Yeah. So, dear Ajahn Brahmali, your teachings are like the sun that lifts the morning fog. You know? <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's pretty, pretty not very nice of you to say that. So, I <laughs> thank you for everything you do and for sharing your knowledge with us. May the devas help escort you safely to Europe and home again, wherever <laughs> home may be. Sadu, sadu, sadu. And may your mum's garden snail be safe and at ease too. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I feel a bit have a bit of compassion for those snails. Actually, I'll see what we can, what we can do about that. So that's so very kind of you to to say that. So. Um, we, um, maybe next year it will be Venerable Akalik, or maybe he will take one retreat. Sometimes it's nice to hear the Dhamma from different people, uh, because it's kind of, it's interesting that everyone has their own little angle on the Dhamma, they bring out different things. Uh, and sometimes when you hear it from different people, it kind of grows because of the different angles you hear, hear it from. Uh, so it's good to kind of have 
teachers then are not too different. They shouldn't kind of teach you something completely different. Then it gets really confusing. Yeah. But slightly different angles can be very useful sometimes. Uh, so, uh, you know, if I was a carbon copy of Ajahn Brahm, it wouldn't be as interesting, right? Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's just that because it's different, that's what makes it, makes it interesting sometimes. Uh. And maybe the nuns too will one day come in force and kind of teach a nine-day retreats. I think that would be really cool. We need a, a kind of the perspective from a woman is going to be slightly different from a man, yeah, because of different conditioning, different background. And I think those perspectives are also very important to have. So uh, hopefully we can kind of, uh, you know, get broader perspectives in this way. That's always very useful. Okay. Next one. Uh, dear Ajahn Bamali, thank you for your wonderful teachings. You really make the suttas come alive. Uh, yeah, using the suttas to make the decisions. Uh, is, this, is this one? Okay, so let's see. Uh, how do I make an important decision like retirement? Uh, <laughs> I feel it is a no-turning-back type of decision. It is not about worrying if I have sufficient funds for retirement. It is about worrying if I will waste my time on frivolous activities like watching TV or reading novels. Well, it seems like a good decision that I will have uh, more time for the spiritual path, like attending more retreats, reading the suttas. What if I don't? <laughs> With more time on the hands, what if I waste all the time and in fact regress on the spiritual practice? Your advice, please. Thank you. <laughs> um, yes, maybe retire gradually. Yeah, don't don't take don't don't leave your everything straight straight away. Go kind of uh, see how you do when you have more time. Get a feeling for how you live with that. Take a take a kind of long service leave. Yeah, go for a month or whatever and see what that feels like. Try out, try things out. It's like coming to a monastery. Yeah, people ask, should I ordain or not? Then I say, try it out. Come to the monastery. Maybe you will hate, hate the monastery. Maybe you think the monks are a bunch of nutters. You don't want to have anything to do with them. I don't know. It's so, it varies so enormously, right? It really depends on your character. It's impossible to have any, there's no kind of rights or wrongs in these things. So be, but you have a point, yeah? I think it's an important point that you're making there. It's very hard to know how you would react to having more time. So uh, test it out. Uh, yeah, go gently, gently, uh, and see what happens. Uh, and uh, sometimes, uh, you know, having a, having a job, uh, maybe reduced time can be meaningful for many people. Uh, I know many other people, they retire and they, you know, I mean, for us, we have a spiritual path, which is a kind of great advantage, but a lot of people find it very hard to retire. Uh, very difficult. They don't know what to do with themselves. Uh, so, um, yeah, something like that, yeah? And let's see what happens. Maybe you can even take a year off, uh, go for a year's leave, and say, okay, I'd like to come back after a year. Is that all right? Can I come back after a year? And then see what happens, uh, and see what it feels like. Uh, and then um, go gently very hard to know ourselves. We don't know ourselves that well, yeah? It's very difficult to know how we react to new situations. Uh, and this is uh, part of what this is about. Uh, so, um, yeah, so, I don't know, good luck, uh, see what happens, uh, and, uh, yeah. Okay, next one. 
Is seeing things according to reality a synonym for stream entry, or does it apply to other levels of insights as well? Thank you. Uh, seeing things according to reality is not necessarily stream entry. Uh, it is uh, uh, in the suttas, uh, this is a phrase that you find after samadhi. Yeah, this, the, the teaching is gradual, you move from these various, the mind kind of moves. Uh, it develops in a certain way according to dependent liberation. You come to samadhi. When you come out of samadhi, that is when you see things according to reality because there are no defilements in the mind. Yeah, when the, when the five hindrances are gone, avidja, ignorance, doesn't have a support anymore. So avidja becomes weak. Ignorance becomes weak. Delusion becomes weak. It doesn't have anything to stand on. And because you see things according to reality. So you have to keep on looking, keep on seeing that way. And eventually the penny drops. And when the penny drops, that's when you have the insight. You're still trapped a little bit by that delusion. So you have to keep on looking and looking. And eventually it goes. And then there are specific contemplations that we do. Yeah? And the specific things that we do is that we contemplate the five khandhas. Because it is in the five khandhas, the five factors of personality, the five aspects of personality. That is where the sense of self tends to reside. So if you want to see, understand that actually that is a delusion, that is where you have to look. This is why the Buddha creates or taught these categories. So, but on the other hand, you can say that seeing things according to reality, stream entry is a type of seeing things according to reality. Yeah? It's a deep. A deep kind of version of that. Uh, certainly when you become a stream entry, certainly you do think, see things according to reality. But seeing things according to reality is a bit broader than that. Uh, so, yes. <coughs> okay. So, uh, all right, this seems to be the same person? No, no, same handwriting. Two different questions. Okay. <laughs> Dear Ajahn, please talk again a little, if you would, about the mind before jhana and about the disappearance of the hindrances. It was so beautiful this afternoon. I thought how nice and also useful it would be to hear a little more again. Thank you so much. You know, the thing is that if you ask to hear things again, it's usually disappointing the second time around. It's true, isn't it? I, I've always found if I try to repeat myself, it never works the same way the second time around. Because often it is the spur of the moment you feel inspired and it comes out in a nice way. And if you try to be inspired kind of randomly, it just doesn't work. So <laughs> I'm not sure if that is such a good idea because uh, it's just going to kind of, um, it's going to be problematic. Yeah. But uh, the basic idea of the meditation practice, this beautiful sense of dependent liberation, yeah, where the mind gradually becomes more and more peaceful, more and more blissful, that is really how you measure the entire meditation practice. And if the mind is becoming more peaceful and you're experiencing greater and greater sense of joy and deep, still pieces of bliss, that is what the path is all about. And you can measure your meditation through those two factors. Yeah, are you heading in the right direction or not? At the very least, you should have less suffering as you go along. Less suffering, more peace, 
more happiness, uh, all of these kind of things, uh, then you know you're on the right track. Yeah. So it's kind of this marvelous path. Yeah, it's something very, very beautiful and attractive about this. Uh, and if you have the slightest bit of faith that this may actually be true, uh, why on earth wouldn't you be doing this? Uh, I sometimes I, you know, read this and I think, why isn't everyone a Buddhist? That's what I think. Uh, it's obvious you have to be a Buddhist, right? I mean, what else are you going to be here? Uh, why isn't the whole world lining up to outside the gates of the monastery, signing up to become monks as soon as possible? Yeah? Please, please, I want to become a monk. I want to become a nun. Now, not tomorrow, straight away. Ajahn. And if, of course, Ajahn Brahm, he would take compassion on you and he would probably make you a monk. And we have thousands of monks, you know, in the, in the monastery here. <laughs> anyway, I'm exaggerating a bit, but, you know, <laughs> something, something like that. Why, why isn't everyone a Buddhist with these beautiful suttas? There's lots of reasons for that, of course. One of the things that is hard to see here. People don't really believe it, or they think it's too difficult. Yeah, okay, maybe in theory it's true. Yeah, maybe Ajahn Brahm can do it, but I can't do it. Yeah, it's impossible. Actually, that's the wrong way of thinking about it. Uh, if you have a human mind, uh, yeah, if you haven't got a human mind, okay, then you don't need to be here. Then you can kind of walk out. Uh, <laughs> but if you are not a zombie, uh, then you, know, you, you are in the right place. This is for you. This is what happens uh, if you develop your mind in the right way. Uh, there is no choice. If you live in the right way, this is what's going to happen to you. And people think, oh, I can't do it. It's nothing to do with you. <laughs> so it's really, it's a wonderful path, isn't it? So uh, anyway, so. Okay, next one. Dearest Ajahn, okay. <laughs> I hope you don't mind that greeting. I am feeling very appreciative towards you and everyone here. What a wonderful thing to say. So this is the most relaxed I felt in my life. Uh, please, can you talk a little bit about the place of relaxation, ease, tranquility, etc. on this very nice journey? By the way, that brilliant teacher you are. And also, Bhante Akaliko is a very comforting, quietly supportive presence in an interview. Thank you, Bhante. So there you are. You'll probably see more of him here in the future. So... Uh, so, <laughs> maybe, see what happens. So, so um, yes, uh, the place of relaxation, ease and tranquility, all of these things are fundamental to the path. Yeah? This is what the path really is about. This is part of it. If you cannot relax, if you cannot be at ease, if you cannot feel tranquility and all of these kind of things then it's not really working, yeah, because this is a very important aspect of being happy. Yeah, you cannot be happy if you are tense and uptight and not relaxed and, and all of those things. So this is such an important part of the practice. And of course, so you learn that, and this is why we don't try too hard. One of the problems with trying too hard is that you get tense very often, sit too many hours, get up kind of rigidly and do things in a very rigid regimented kind of way, actually it often detracts from the meditation. It's important to have like routines, yeah, so you have a kind of structure, that's kind of very handy. But within that structure, always have flexibility, yeah? always do things in a way that you can enjoy yourself, be at ease, and you can you know, take in, use this path to the best of your ability, make the most progress. It is all about progress in Buddhism. We shouldn't, you know, when we when we ask each other, how are you? The answer should really be, 
I'm, you know, I'm getting better. Yeah, I'm better this year than last year. That is really the answer. If we're making progress, then we are living well. Then we're living in the right way. Yeah? And that is what all of this really is about. So uh, that's wonderful. I'm very glad that you are gaining these kind of results. It means that you're having the right attitude. Yeah? And that right attitude is really fundamental for the whole progress on the path and meditation and all of that. So excellent. I'm very glad that you are so appreciative of everyone here. This is really a fundamental thing to be appreciative of your fellow meditators. Yeah, it's so important to have that positive attitude towards everyone. Not become fault-finding and negative. The moment you do that, you destroy your whole enjoyment of the retreat or whatever it is else that you're doing here. So, great. Okay. Dear Ajahn, can you talk a little bit about happiness? Does it simply arise in a mind moment that is low in the hindrances? Or do we have to know suffering, to know happiness? In your experience, what are the common causes and conditions for its arising? Thank you, Ajahn. You are Norway's greatest export. <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> They didn't really. They didn't really export me, you know. I think they are. They just. <laughs> anyway. Anyway. Yeah. yeah. Um, yes. So. Uh, does it happen just if the mind is low in hindrances? Yes. Yeah. If you if the kind of the hindrances go down, if you're watching the breath very often, it's just an automatic thing that happens as you go along. Yeah things kind of become peaceful, and suddenly they kind of arises out of nowhere. But of course, it arises much more easily if you have a mind that has practiced this kindness and all of these good things for a long time, because you tend to feel good about yourself. You tend to have a sense of self-worth, value yourself, self-esteem, and all of these kind of things. And when you have that, that kind of inner warmth and appreciation of yourself, then these things happen as a consequence. So all of these things coming together, yes, you become more peaceful, but all the things you have done beforehand will aid that happiness from arising as your meditation deepens. So it's kind of a many things coming together. Do we have to know suffering to know happiness? Um, it helps, yeah, because if you understand suffering, you also understand where happiness is. And one of the things that we will see later on when we talk about uh, the five khandhas uh, is that the way we contemplate the five khandhas in part is to understand uh, the, the problematic nature yeah, of them, what are better aspects of the five khandhas, what are worse aspects of the five khandhas. Uh, and then understanding happiness and suffering in this way is very helpful for improving your meditation practice and therefore knowing where to find bliss. Yeah? If you understand that happiness is not to be found so much in the world of the five senses, your mind will automatically move towards meditation practice. Your mind will be more peaceful because what's the point of thinking about all those things that are suffering anyway? You don't want to think about them. Yeah? You want to worry about the issues that actually don't really um, get you anywhere. And so you let it go. So certainly, yes, understanding suffering is very unhappy useful to understand happiness. To understand happiness is useful to understand suffering. They revolve around each other. Yeah. 
what are the common causes and conditions for its arising? Well, it's really just about, you know, learning to tune into the spiritual side of your life, yeah? Learning to, how to, we've been talking about this already, just having a sense of gratitude, simply just feeling how fortunate we all are to be able to be here together like this, yeah? With good company, with these marvelous teachings of the Buddha, with, uh, you know, in a safe place like Perth in Western Australia. It's a very good place to live. Yeah, everything is very good, at least for now. We don't know what the future holds, but for now it's great. And kind of all of these things coming together here. There are very few places in the world where kind of all the factors for practicing Dhamma come together as strongly as they do right here. Very strong Buddhist community, great place to live, monasteries that are kind of in good places where suitable for practice, teachers like Ajahn Brahm to lead the whole community. Yeah, I'm so grateful I found Ajahn Brahm. It was one of those kind of, uh, I don't know if it's lucky or what it was, but uh, you know, it's kind of amazing to find a teacher like that. And of course the Buddha behind it all, everything coming together. And when you start to appreciate that, you feel a sense of gratitude. You feel a sense of, wow, amazing, how come I was so lucky? Yeah, I better take this opportunity. And you start to feel a sense of joy and happiness. It's all about how we perceive things. And sometimes a slight change in perception can make you feel joy and happiness. Yeah, appreciating your fellow people around you, appreciating yourself for having lived well. Yay, I got myself on this retreat. <laughs> yeah, and that is the kind of way of appreciating yourself. Anyway, something like that, yeah, it's, it, it's, you have to sort of um, try these things out, you have to kind of work with it a little bit, and after a while you start to understand how, you, how these things happen. Okay, next one. Dear Ajahn, we spoke about spittoons this morning. <laughs> yes, in the temples in Asia, they still have spittoons. Well, we actually have them here as well. We don't use them quite that way. But anyway, the monks need to wash their fingers at dana time. They eat with the fingers. A supporter would pour water. Yes, exactly. Yeah. While the monk holds out the fingers to the spittoon to wash. Also, they use the spittoon to put food scraps. Maybe we can use spittoon to put food scraps, banana peel, etc. Just a little. That's actually what we do. Yeah, that's exactly what we do in the monastery. We use the spittoons in that way. Uh, we even now, I think Ajahn Brahm gets his hands washed in this way a little bit. I don't really watch what's happening with Ajahn Brahm, but we used to do this before in our monastery. We're getting a little bit, maybe happening a bit less. But uh, I think Ajahn Brahm. I think he pours the water himself these days. Uh, but uh, yes, exactly. That's exactly how they are used, uh, and you don't have to use them for spitting betel nut uh, stuff, uh, yeah, which is kind of nice because it's a bit, little, bit, uh, little bit disgusting. All right. <laughs> Dear Ajahn, we are supposed to keep noble silence at retreats and when we observe the eight precepts. Can we please know the benefits of this practice in keeping in line with the noble eightfold path? Thank you. So the idea of noble silence is just to reduce the inner chatter. Yeah, when we talk a lot to other people, that also stimulates the mind. Yeah, if you talk to someone, sometimes it reverberates in the, in the mind a long time afterwards. You think about what they said, you know, why did they say that? I wonder, were they upset with me? Or, you know, very often we are very kind of 
kind of this, all this uncertainty that goes on when we communicate with other people. It leads to all kind of papancha, as they say here. So uh, silence can often be very nice, but we have to be silent in the right way. Yeah? It is important that it doesn't become oppressive. Yeah? For some people, silence can become oppressive, and if it becomes oppressive, it's going to be counterintuitive, uh, not intuitive, counterproductive. Yeah? So it should not be oppressive. Yeah? So how can you make it not oppressive? Well, first of all, by understanding its benefits. Uh, Secondly, to think that actually by being silent you are giving a gift to everyone. Yeah, it is supporting everyone's practice here at Jana Grove. And if you think of it as giving a gift, then actually it becomes an act of generosity. And then it becomes something supportive in a deeper sense in your own practice. You're giving something to others while not chatting yourself. Yeah? And the whole thing kind of builds up in a very positive kind of way here. And uh, the idea, of course, is that down the track, when the mind becomes very, very peaceful, you don't really want to talk anymore. You want to be quiet. So we're kind of approximating those conditions early on, so that down the track we are kind of ready for that silence, ready for those kind of things. So this is the idea of noble silence. If it gets too oppressive, then, uh, you know, have a chat with, come and have a chat with me, if you like, uh, at the interview time, or have a, you know, have a talk with your friend or something, whatever, if it really gets too oppressive, but do it out of the way so you don't uh, disturb other meditators. Okay. Wow, okay, gee, this is... This is a long one. Okay, anyway, let's see. it's a poem. Okay, this is a, there's, always, there's always someone who writes poems in the history Twitter, which is very, very sweet. So let's see what this poem is like. Dear Ajahn, a poem. The world is in turmoil. Nowhere to go. Start with your speech and conduct and change your perception to align your views with the teachings. Be kind from moment to moment. This will bring you peace. See how you live your life be steady and keep your precepts. Work tirelessly on restraining of the senses. Guard them at night. Be aware as you go about your day, knowing just the right amount to eat and sleep. Give up the hindrances. Remember that the Buddha regards them as a debt, a disease, a prison, slavery, and a desert crossing. Content, sitting cross-legged, you will find the meaning of life, entering into bliss upon bliss. No more becoming, you have paid off your debts, you are now free as a bird to fly off to Nibbana. (laughs) That's very nice, isn't it? That's really cool. Okay, with much gratitude for the inspired teachings, the sharing from your life experience, and the tools you have given us. Much better and respect. Okay, that's beautiful. Maybe we can publish that in one of our newsletters or something, yeah, from an anonymous retreat. That's always, uh, always nice. Uh, so uh, I'll put it to one side, see what we can do with that, do with these inspired poems. Dear Arjan, can you kindly summarize in one statement how to purify our minds, please? Uh, thank you. <laughs> Summarize in one statement uh, how to purify uh, our minds, please. Uh, um. (laughs) 
It's really, this, these, are kind of, these, are, these are the hardest questions of all. How can you summarize the entire Buddha's teachings in one word? I want one word uh, or something like that. Uh, actually, I can probably do that. But, uh, um, yeah, I think, that, I think uh, there's always one summary that I like of the Dhamma, which I, because we need to keep it simple. Huh? And usually I say this at the very end of the retreat, yeah, because that's kind of when we need to take it with us back into our ordinary life, etc. But really, if you can just remember one word, uh, and that word is kindness. Uh, and as long as you can remember kindness, really all of the purity of the mind is really included in that. Uh, almost, yeah, it is a little, I mean, you can still argue that some things are not included in that, but a lot is included in that. Uh, and if you can be kind, moment to moment to moment, day in, day out, yeah, in a deeper and deeper fashion, sometimes one of the problems is that we can be, it can be a little bit superficial. Yeah, we are kind, but it doesn't really go deep inside. So one of the important things is to kind of make it heartfelt. Yeah? If you can make it heartfelt to be kind, to be compassionate to others, to be caring, the more heartfelt it is, the more powerful it's going to be so you have to kind of, and this, to make it heartfelt, you have to change your perceptions, look at other people in a new way, see their good qualities, see their suffering, wanting to help them out, all of these kind of things. So kindness, I think, is really the, the best way to think of uh, uh, purifying the mind, and then you should be on the right track. All right. Dear Ajahn, could you explain the difference between desire and restlessness? Thank you so much. Uh, they are very closely related to each other. Yeah, uh, restlessness, uh, desire almost always has restlessness coming with it. Uh, but restlessness can also come from other things. It can come from ill will. Uh, yeah? It can also come from the sense of self. Uh, the ego can make you restless. Uh, because the ego kind of, yeah, I want to do, I want to act, whatever it is, yeah, it doesn't matter what it is, and then you act. Uh, of course, there is desire involved in that as well, because uh, desire kind of creeps into the ego as well. Huh? But they are very closely related to each other. Huh? The deeper you go in meditation, yeah, we abandon the desire as you go down. The deeper you go, the more these kind of refined defilements take on a life of their own. Huh? So when you go very deep, for example, there is, the mind can be incredibly bright, but there's still a little bit of restlessness there, a little bit of movement in the mind. And that can have to do with the sense of self rather than desire at those points. Or the mind can be, very, can be, you can be doing very well, but there can be a little bit, perhaps, a, a remnant of um, dullness there. The mind is not fully bright, yeah? And it's nothing really all that much to do with the other hindrances. It's just that the brightness hasn't really reached the highest level yet. So as you go very deep, these, these kind of defilements take on a life of their own. But in the earlier stages of the path, most of the dullness and the restlessness comes out of desire. So that means you can focus on the desires and the ill will, and usually that purifies most of the things in the mind. Most of these problems are resolved through looking at those defilements. So very closely related to each other. Dear Ajahn Brahmali, thank you so much doing this retreat. I haven't missed any since you started Sutta Retreats. I am very fortunate, looking forward to the next one. <laughs> 
yes, uh, we'll see what happens. Uh, it is up to me to practice diligently. Thanks, Venerable Carlico, for keeping company for Ajahn here. Once again, a big thank you to uh, Lei, Har, and Christina. Every time they do a marvelous job to organize. Uh, yes, that is very true. I think sometimes we don't realize how much work actually goes on behind the scenes. Uh, I always want to tell Lei, Har, relax. You know, don't do some <laughs> enjoy the retreat. Uh, but uh, sometimes it's very hard to do that because you have to, you know, when you are responsible, you feel that responsibility, I suppose. Uh, but it's important that we should, uh, maybe we should have a deputy retreat manager who can kind of take over sometimes, lay hard, so you can have a proper retreat sometimes. Uh, anyway, may the merits go to all the people who provided dana every day. That's another amazing thing that's happening here. Thank you very much, everybody, with lots of metta. That's a very nice uh, sentiment right there. And, uh, and also thank you for the bhikkhunis who come. It's nice to have the double sangha here. I think it's marvelous that we get the bhikkhunis coming. And uh, hopefully we can get them to even give some more teachings here. Uh, I know from, from personal experience that there's a lot of wisdom and a lot of interesting teachings uh, in the uh, kind of bhikkhuni side of the uh, sangha. And it would be great to hear some more of that uh, so that's marvelous. And uh, I can assure you that, yes, Venerable Kaliko is an excellent company. Uh, he, is a, he, he is kind of one of these very easy people to live with uh, and very supportive and everything. So it's kind of amazing that he... And he came voluntarily. He said, can I come on a retreat? Of course you can come on my retreat. <laughs> Sorry, I, uh, it was my friend who offered the ticket. Was it? Uh, yeah. When he found out that yeah. I wasn't coming. Really? Insisted. Insisted to come? Okay, so there you are. Uh. Mm-hmm. How can you not go? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so thank you. Okay. That's amazing. Okay. So thank you, friend. I'm not, we're not going to out you wherever you might be, but you, uh, <laughs> that's very kind of you to, be, to, be, to do that. Uh. And then he bought me a ticket. Right. That's, uh, exactly. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so uh, excellent. So thank you very much for these kind words. It's always nice to, for, uh, to say these things because it is actually quite extraordinary how these retreats kind of work out. So many people involved, so many people doing good things. Uh, and uh, we still have another day and a half, so we... So, <laughs> so let's see. Let's take it to the very end. Okay, next one. Ajahn, did the Buddha mention the process of rebirth? Where does the mind go after we die? Uh, yes, he mentions the process of rebirth. Uh, rebirth itself is obviously very important in the suttas. I, I assume you are aware of that. And the process as well is really explained in various kinds of ways. Yeah? And uh, the process, you know, it's basically about how your mind is established in a certain way in this life. And how it is established in this life really then determines where it goes in the future. Yeah? So the process is just really the mind continuing here. Yeah? Why would the mind not continue? Why would the mind stop? I think one of the reasons why we think that is because we have this idea of the mind depending on the body. But actually it's more like the body depends on the mind. The mind is the primary thing. The body is secondary. And the body is not even as separate from the mind as you might think. Because if you draw the mind out of the body, according to the suttas, there is another body, it's just more refined. Yeah? It's a mind-made body, very often. 
So there isn't that kind of great distinction with mind on the one hand and body on the other. It's more like a gradual giving up of the body. Yeah, you go to more refined bodies until eventually maybe it disappears completely. Yeah. So it's more like the body depends on the mind and the other way around. Yeah. And then you can understand why it is that you know, this process must carry on. Just like the mind carries on in this life, so it will carry on into the future. Yeah. There is no basis for it to stop, basically. They're driven by craving here. Yeah. So where does the mind go after you die? Well, the mind will then go because the mind is established in this life. The establishment of the mind in this life is when you close your eyes, you feel the tendency of your mind, where it is. Well, that's basically where it is established, that tendency of the mind. So what does does your mind like like to hang out? Does it like to fantasize about sensory pleasures? Okay, then that's where it's stationed. It's stationed with sensual pleasures. Does it like to just hang out with the peace? Well, then that is where it likes to go. It's kind of a higher kind of rebirth, a higher station. Does it like to fantasize about evil deeds? Yeah, crime. I'm going to come back. I'm going to you know, steal something or whatever. And I, I don't think anyone here is like that, but it, probably some people are like that, yeah? Then it's kind of stationed in a lower kind of place. So uh, that stationing of the life, in, of the mind in this life, uh, is where the mind will can carry on into the future. That's kind of how this process works uh, and uh, kind of moves on. Uh. So the mind is just there, yeah? The body dies and you're here. Whoop, what happened? I'm dead, gee. This, I'm dead, I don't feel dead at all, I'm still here, what happened? Uh, this is kind of, death is very different from what I think we think it is. Uh, and then you're there, okay, what do I do now? Okay, so you kind of carry on and things kind of move on. Uh, and then you can read about the near-death experiences people have, that gives an idea of what's going on. Maybe you have a life review, uh, maybe these kind of things happen, uh, yeah. So, um, anyway, so... Uh, Okay, let's go on to the next one. Dear Ajahn, certain monks, meditation teachers, caution against jhana. Why is that? Indeed, why is that? (laughs) Is it due not to understanding and experiencing these states themselves? That's probably part of it. Yeah, because if you haven't experienced them, it's easier perhaps to dismiss them. I think there's a number of reasons one of them is for lack of reading the suttas. One of the realities of the Buddhist world is that the vast majority of teachers, including monastics, any teachers, is that they tend to rely on their teacher in turn. So it is what they call the Acharyavada, the doctrine of the teachers. Instead of being the doctrine of the Buddha, is the doctrine of the teachers. And this is very, very common in the Buddhist world. And you rely on your teacher rather than actually going to the source of the tradition. And of course, if you go over many generations, then the message from the suttas can get distorted. Yeah? One of the things that happens, for example, very commonly, how do we understand the suttas? And the suttas are always understood in light of the commentaries, in light of the Abhidhamma, in light of the Visuddhimagga. They're understood in light of everything except for the suttas in their own right. And so we read into the suttas all of these other things, yeah? So we read all of these other things first, then we go to the suttas. And so then we're already kind of preconditioned into reading them in a certain way. 
And uh, so uh, all of these things are reasons why we kind of, we don't really appreciate the importance of samadhi and jhana on the Buddhist path. You start reading the suttas, you find jhana in every other sutta. It's everywhere. Yeah, it's kind of, it's just so fundamental aspect of the practice. It is fundamental to the Noble Eightfold Path. Yeah? And um, people like to argue that jhana is not really necessary, but if they're not necessary, how come they're part of the Noble Eightfold Path? It doesn't make any sense to say they're not necessary. It is kind of a very dangerous move because you are saying that the Buddha taught something that wasn't really required. But the Buddha says, specifically in the suttas, yeah, there is nothing extraneous. There is nothing in the suttas that is added which isn't required. There's nothing too much, nor is there anything too little. The suttas are just right. He says that in a few places. You don't need to add anything. You cannot subtract anything. If you add something, it's going to be too much. If you subtract things, it's going to be too little. They are basically right the way they are. So that's why going back to the suttas is very powerful. This doesn't mean that the later traditions have nothing to say. They do, but we need to kind of be careful. We need to know what to emphasize yeah, and what to kind of take as the primary teachings. And then you are on the right track. Yeah. So yes, reading the suttas and then having the personal experience, both of these things are going to make it very clear that these are very important states and, and um, experiences to have. Uh, so yes. Uh. Okay, dear Arjan, I appreciate the point about the five hindrances, their subtlety and place just before deep meditation. But <laughs> isn't there a journey taken to get to that place of refinement? Uh, I suppose the point is that the term Nivarana is used just for the quiet place before jhana, yet on a coarser level uh, they perhaps are found elsewhere, e.g. in the sense restraint, yeah, hindrance one or two, contentment, sampajanya, uh, etc., all of the above. Yes, yes, you're, you're right. I, well, I'm, I'm not saying that, um, what, what I'm saying is that the, the word, the five hindrances, are a particular way of talking about refined defilements of the mind. Yeah? The more coarser defilements of the mind are not usually called five hindrances. They are just too coarse to even be hindrances. They are kind of massive obstacles. Yeah, they are like uh, a hindrance is kind of a fairly small obstacle. The other ones are so big they don't. They, they should be called something more They're like roadblocks or whatever they are. Uh, so they are kind of really big things. So yes, they are also hindrances, uh, but they haven't got that name nivarana. So I'm just trying to kind of name things in the right way and trying to understand them in the right way because that helps us to see what it is that we need to do. Yeah, Everything has to be done at the right time and right place. The nivaranas are overcome just by watching the breath. That's how you overcome the hindrances, whereas the coarser defilements are overcome in different ways. They are overcome using the power of reflection, for example. Remember the sutta I was talking about, the power of reflection versus the power of development? The power of reflection overcomes the coarse hindrances. The power of development, the meditation practice, overcomes the refined hindrances, the nivaranas. So in this way, we can choose the tool that is useful by, by understanding things in the right way. Yeah? 
So that's really, that was really the point I was trying to make. Not that these other things are not problems. Absolutely, they are problems. So, uh, and all of these things, you're quite right, help to overcome these defilements of the mind. Salutations, Ajahn Brahmali. <laughs> uh, question, what is this meditating here? The five khandas, the non-self, what is the non-self? Thank you for the wonderful talk, Sadhu. Okay, what is this meditating? What, in other words, what is this thing that meditates? That's what you're, you're wondering, presumably. What is it that does the meditation? Well, it is uh, uh, basically meditation doing itself. That's one way of thinking about it. Uh, yeah, the five khandas doing meditation. Uh, it is, uh, um, you can say that you are doing the meditation. You just have to think of you in the right way. You are not an entity. You are a continuously changing phenomenon. Uh, that's what you are. That is what does the meditation. Yeah? In the end, you could say no one does the meditation because there's no, no one really there. But obviously, meditation is happening here. That's what matters. The five khandas, the same thing. The five khandas is just, again, just a particular way of describing this empty process. Empty process of a person can be described, can be um, analyzed into these five khandas. These are five aspects of the personality, yeah? But ultimately they are empty. Ultimately there's nothing there, nothing solid you can hold on to as the a real person. Uh. The non-self, the non-self is just, uh, yeah, it's just what you have now, that's non-self. Uh. You have this all the time, except that you think there is more there than what is actually there. Uh. So what is the non-self? <laughs> the non-self is your experience at this moment, that's the non-self. Uh. So uh, it is not that hard to see. You start to see it in your meditation practice. Yeah. When you become more peaceful, you will see that certain things have disappeared. That's why you are more peaceful. What are the things that disappear? Your thinking has disappeared to some extent. Yeah. Certain perceptions, certain things that you are used to have disappeared. Your body is fading into the background. You have less restlessness. Yeah. All of these things are disappearing. Yeah. So when the thinking disappears, uh, what, the thinking is really an expression of the ego very much. Yeah? It is an expression with think, I think, these are my thoughts. Uh, but then when the thinking is gone, you are still there. Uh, the thoughts are gone, so the thoughts weren't really you. They were non-self. They were empty. They weren't really an aspect that you could take to be the real you. Uh, and how does it feel to get rid of the thoughts? It feels very nice. Yeah? And in this way, you can see that uh, uh, this idea of uh, non-self, of getting rid of the perception of a self in certain things, uh, is actually very beautiful. It's very nice. It's very delightful. You start to understand that the sense of self is a nuisance. Yeah? It's problematic. It stops you from being happy. The thinking, insofar it is an as it is an expression of the sense of self, it's painful. Get rid of that particular expression of the sense of self, and you feel better. This is how you can understand how non-self actually is something very wonderful and beautiful. Yeah, you can sort of be very, very happy about non-self, and then you can extrapolate. Well, if it's already this good, what if I let go of more? Now you're getting the idea. You let go of more, even more happy. Yeah, even less sense of self. 
the less the sense of self, the more happy you are. Yeah? And you keep on going until it's completely gone. That's when you feel the maximum happiness. That's how this works. So. Okay, dear Ajahn B, I guess that's me. So, um, <laughs> I thought I was a pretty chill guy, but it turns out I'm a control freak. Yeah. <laughs> that's great, yeah? So you kind of get some insight into the deeper aspects of the mind. That's wonderful. Yeah. When it comes time to watch the breath uh, and I make my transition, I find my heart starts beating faster. Pain arises uh, and the breath becomes irregular, yeah. As I back off and reapproach, similar variations occur. On the conceptual level, I understand that you're simply supposed to allow the breath to be. But in practice, clearly, there is some controlling happening here. What to do? Any tips? How can I further undermine my inner control freak and become best bros with my breath? <laughs> yes, and this is one of those very difficult. This is one of those things that is very, very hard for many people, not to control the breath. And if you control the breath, it actually becomes unpleasant. Yeah, it is not nice. You cannot really relax properly. You cannot really enjoy the meditation. So it is so important to be able to let go. And so to be able to do that, you have to give rise to, to certain perceptions that gives you an idea. What does it mean not to control and I will give you some examples of what it means not to control. And this is, I've already spoken a little bit about them before, but let me give you some, some further examples. And one of the examples I often give is the idea of, let's say you have been working really hard at something, maybe going to work, yeah, concentrating all day, trying to get reports written or reading thug stuff or whatever it is. And when you, after a long day of this, you feel exhausted. Yeah? You come back home and what do you do? Well, what you often do is that you sit down in your favorite armchair and you just relax, right? And you're completely out of it for a while. You don't necessarily fall asleep, but you really just let go. So what do you do at that point? Do you force yourself to let go? Do you focus really hard on something? No, you do the exact opposite. You just allow things to be. You allow your mind to wander. All day long you have been forcing your mind to look at certain things, to do certain things. Now you just want to allow the mind to be. So you allow the mind to wander. And as you allow the mind to wander, the mind loses, regains some of its energy. Yeah? It is nice for the mind to be let loose in that sense. And then it regains some of its energy. And then after a while you feel better, you get up, and then you kind of make dinner or whatever it is that you have to do for the evening. Yeah? And this is like, a bit, meditation is a bit like that. It's like that idea when you sit back in the armchair and you allow everything to be. Yeah, and then when you allow everything to be, peace comes to you. If you do it in the right way, peace eventually comes. Especially if you know that that is what is delightful, that is what is useful. Mind will kind of move towards the peace. And that is the right, that, this is the ideal way of doing meditation. Allowing things to happen in this way and then wait for the breath. And the breath is always around, right? The breath is never far away because it's part of our experience. And then when the mind becomes peaceful, the breath kind of just appears. It's just there. And then you're already watching the breath. 
you don't have to grab hold of the breath. You don't have to do anything because it's always kind of present. And then you continue to stay with the breath in the same way as you're sitting in that armchair without holding on to it. So this is the armchair simile. Another simile is the dying simile. So you're on your deathbed and you are dying, right? So what does it feel like on your deathbed? Do you try very hard to do anything at all? Probably not. You're just kind of relaxing. You're chilling. Yeah? But the beautiful thing about being on your deathbed, because there is no future anymore, you don't think about anything. There's nothing to think about. Yeah? Everything in the world has become meaningless to you. You have let go of the past. The future is irrelevant. So the simile of being on your deathbed, just relaxing, but also letting go at the same time, because nothing in the world is important, that is what we're trying to replicate in meditation practice. And this is why the idea of death contemplation can be so powerful, because death and meditation are so similar. <laughs> Sometimes people get worried about that. Well, meditation is like death. Maybe I come to the wrong place. This is, kind of, this is a bit too scary. But actually, it can be very useful, yeah? because we're all going to have to die anyway. There's not much choice in the matter. Might as well get used to the idea now. And if you can bring that idea into the present, rather than waiting uh, to use this, wonderful, this kind of opportunity at the time of death, bring it into the present. Use it now. This is the idea. And then, if you can imagine, yeah, actually, we could be dead in a few hours. We don't know. And because we could be dead, you have to be ready now. If you're not ready now, when are you going to be ready? You probably won't be ready when it actually happens, because now is the only time to be ready. So, is that, wow, okay, that means I could really be dead in a couple of hours. What does that mean? Well, what it means, there's nothing to be done. There's no future. There's nothing of interest in the world. And the moment the penny drops, bang, you become peaceful. And you just enjoy the peace. And maybe the breath is there. But even if the breath isn't there, it doesn't matter so much, yeah? Because you're just chilling. You become that chill guy you're trying to be here. And then you are on the right track, yeah? So this is, the, uh, this is another way of doing it, yeah? Using the idea of death. The other day I was talking about the idea of the, watching the sunset. What is it like to watch a sunset? You don't try very hard to watch the sunset. You don't have to force yourself to watch the sunset, right? That kind of defeats the purpose. The point of watching a sunset is to relax and just enjoy something nice. So, what is it? so you hang in there, you're watching the sunset. You're not really forcing yourself on anything. You're just enjoying it. And because the sunset is beautiful, your mind is naturally attracted to it. You just watch it. You see the colors in the sky here. You see the clouds there, yeah? I see some magnificent, magnificent sunsets from my cutie. I have the cutie overlooking the kind of the, the, the uh, on the hill, what, you know, seeing all the flatlands and seeing the ocean in the distance. Uh, it's beautiful. My, I had the best cutie in the monastery. Don't tell the other monks, they might get. No, no I, I have a, if you ever have a chance, you can go up and have a look at my, my, the, the view of my cutie. It's very, it's very magnificent. Actually, I should probably move. I don't appreciate it anymore. After a while, you, don't, you stop seeing these things. Uh, but um, uh, the idea is just that you enjoy what is there. You don't do anything, and you enjoy it because it's nice. Yeah? You are attracted to it. And in exactly the same way with the breath, the breath is enjoyable because it is peaceful, because it is just uh, nice to hang out with. Yeah? And then you're kind of on this uh, uh, 
on the, having kind of the right idea what it is about. What it is about. Uh, there are other perceptions that we can use as well. Then, like falling asleep, for example, it's a bit similar to falling, you know, to what you do when you fall asleep, except that you don't go asleep, fall asleep. But a similar kind of thing when you fall asleep, you have to let go. Yeah, similar kind of thing, except that you stay alert rather than going to sleep. So try some of these ideas and see what happens, and um, yeah. So hopefully you will get there. All right. Dear Ajahn Brahmali, thank you so much for teaching the death contemplation meditation last night. I was surprised. I experienced joy towards the end when you said it is time to say goodbye to your loved ones. <laughs> <laughs> how, how often can we practice death contemplation meditation? Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Um, yes, so uh, you can. There are many different ways of uh, doing this, but remember the, the idea behind this is just to give you a, a sense of what it means, yeah? what this process is like, and to give you a feeling for let, the idea of letting go. That's really the purpose of this. But it is good regularly to remind yourself that you're going to die and that you don't know when it's going to be. It's actually very, very useful contemplation. In your daily life, I remember many, many years ago, I was in Brisbane, and I met this man. He was of Sri Lankan extraction, and he was a psychologist. And he told me that every morning when he left his house, he reminded himself that he could die on that day. And because he reminded himself of that, he re- he recognized he had to say goodbye to his wife and his kids in a good way. Yeah, he couldn't leave in a huff or leave after an argument. No, that wasn't really acceptable because you don't want to die after you had an argument. That's kind of terrible. So the idea of death always reminds you of your priorities, what is important in life. It allows you to put aside those, that silliness that we often kind of cling on to in life, yeah? where we argue with each other, we have disagreements and all of these kind of things. So death contemplation can be something regular. Ideally, we have this idea, kind of almost carry it with us everywhere we go, because it actually makes us better human beings when we remember this. So this is the idea. And you don't have to do the kind of contemplation I did yesterday. That's kind of just to give you a feeling for what happens. It's kind of just to kind of get you used to the idea. But sometimes all you have to do is just remind yourself, I could die at any time. Don't know when it's going to be here. And see what happens when you do that. All right, a few more questions, and then we have uh, uh, finished for the evening. So, uh, dear Ajahn, it is perhaps not a terrible idea to impress upon you how important to the sasana you are. Okay. Um, <laughs> okay. So, sasana is the Buddhist dispensation. Please do take some care on your forthcoming trip. May it be enjoyable and include safe returns. By the way, when will you be back? Thank you for your effort for all you do. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. Okay, good. Uh, so uh, I'm glad you are enjoying the, these uh, teachings. And, uh, you know, the... I think one of the most important things, the way I see my life as a Buddhist monk, is to really make the Buddha's teaching available. That is what I think is one of the most important things. And uh, if we can do that and uh, 
many people have that ability, then uh, we're going to have a long sasana because of that. Uh, and uh, yeah, I should be hope if if I come back at all. I never know if you're going to come back. You know, that's kind of uncertain. But if I if I do come back, it should be just before the rains retreat starts. So, so there you are. Yeah. All right. So uh, next one. Uh, to the person who wrote about lust, to some degree, we all have this uh, uh, to learn about and eventually overcome, so you're not alone. Uh, it was interesting, Ajahn Ramali called it painful. It is uh, and creates much strife. Uh, the world convinces us that it is uh, good and we blindly follow, but the world is wrong. The, <laughs> the Buddha said, uh, to see the uh, happiness, danger, and escape in these things. To see the escape involves beginning to see it uh, as an arahant would, uh, as a great unhappiness, as a tyrant, as a destroyer of true happiness. Uh, as Ajahn said, good luck to us all. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, so uh, there's a lot of truth in that, uh, but uh, it is... Uh, often difficult to see, so you need to kind of uh, contemplate these things. So, uh, that's good. Okay, uh, coming to the uh, last question for tonight. Dear Ajahn, is it okay that when the breath comes up, uh, it stays for as long as it wants to, and then goes away, and might not come back, or might, as it pleases? Is this okay? Sorry, it is a rather obvious thing to ask, but I believe it will be helpful to hear you speak on this. Uh, also, can you please talk again about the causes for the breath to want to stay <laughs> with metta? Much better. Yes, so uh, indeed, it is perfectly okay to allow the breath to come and go. If you don't allow the breath to come and go, the only way you can do that is by grasping hold of it, uh, yeah, holding it firmly. Uh, and if you hold the breath firmly with the grip of your mind, with your willpower, it's going to be unpleasant. So much better to allow the breath to come and go. Yeah? Okay, now the mind doesn't want to go there anymore. And so you allow the breath to go, and then uh, it doesn't take long usually before you kind of are aware, oh, I'm thinking. And the moment you know that you're thinking about something, the breath is immediately there. It is not, you don't even have to go to the breath. It just happens automatically. And then you allow the thinking to fade away, and the breath comes back into focus again. Yeah, that's how it uh, kind of works. So please allow the breath to come and go. But what you want to do, you want to encourage the breath to stay longer. And the way to do that is, well, first of all, to understand that all that thinking is not really worthwhile. It doesn't get you anywhere. You're not going to be able to sort out all those problems anyway. It's kind of a waste of time. And uh, then you have to enjoy the breath. Yeah? Everything about meditation practice is about enjoying what you're doing. Uh, seeing the peace in the breath, uh, seeing the beauty in the breath, uh, having maybe metta to the breath is one of Ajahn Brahm's kind of ideas. Having you know, metta towards the breath, uh, your friend the breath yeah? that you're kind of uh, uh, hanging out with. Uh, and uh, when you're hanging out with a friend, it's easy. Yeah? Someone who is kind, someone who is nice, someone who supports you. And certainly the breath supports us. Without the breath, we wouldn't go very far at all. So uh, see the, try to see the peacefulness of the meditation, the beauty of the breath. Uh, see the breath as something, uh, uh, some, like a friend or whatever it is. Uh, 
and then hopefully, uh, gradually, it will uh, become more stable uh, and you will enjoy it more. Uh. And eventually the breath becomes so beautiful you can't get your mind off it. Yeah, it becomes just so powerful and so nice. Uh, and this is what this mindfulness of breathing ultimately is about. Uh, and then, uh, uh, of course, then you have got it all sorted out. And then once you've got it all sorted out, uh, next time you try, it's all forgotten again. Huh? <laughs> it's weird how life is. You think, now I get it, now I understand. Uh, but actually, even that is only temporary very often. Then you have to come back and learn again, uh, gradually, gradually building up uh, and seeing how these things work. Yeah. Okay, everyone, that is uh, all for this morning. So please have another good night's rest, uh, and we'll see you again tomorrow morning. Yeah. Let's do the Arahang Sama Sambudo together here.